0: The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German engineered blades, well designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit Harry's.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. And by Audible.com, with more than 250,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30 day trial and a free audiobook at audiblepodcast.com The Gist.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: <laughs> It's Thursday, June 2nd, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, And on this show, we have played a lot of Donald Trump. He is entertaining. He's open. He's fascinating. He's funny. But he's also dangerous, unqualified, and wrong. So let me now just play one clip from Hillary Clinton's speech delivered today in San Diego. It's an almost 40-second long clip. And here it is.
0: Donald Trump's ideas aren't just different. They are dangerously incoherent. They're not even really ideas, just a series of bizarre rants, personal feuds, and outright lies. He is not just unprepared. He is temperamentally unfit to hold an office that requires knowledge, stability, and immense responsibility.
2: And that is the deal, isn't it? Her further arguments in that speech expanded on the theme, pointing out that we're lucky to have two allies at our borders. Why would we want to antagonize Mexico into the status of enemy? Pointing out that when Trump talks of killing the families of terrorists, that contradicts her actual experience in the Situation Room, where the Navy SEALs were careful not to harm the women and children in the Bin Laden compound because doing so would violate American values. Making the case... As ridiculous as it is that you have to make the case, but making the case that allies are good, more nuclear weapons in the world is bad, mocking the disabled is wrong, denigrating women is embarrassing. And though in the wake of the speech, cable news offered as it does the analysis, the contextualization, how will this play? How will this work with swing voters? Will this serve to counter Hillary's own negatives? Probably not. But let's just say this about the speech. Hillary Clinton was right. She was correct. She said basic fundamental truths and she said them succinctly. I know we live in the theater review world of spin and analysis, but those things, those traits, those virtues that I just listed are the important things about this speech. Everything she said was correct. Every criticism she made was warranted. Every argument she made was necessary toward the goal of defeating Donald Trump. You know, I sometimes think that the case against Trump seems so obvious that it's hard to give Hillary Clinton any credit for doing anything other than not screwing it up. And when she does screw up, like with the email server, it seems unconscionable that she could be the one person standing between Donald Trump and the White House. But today in San Diego, in this speech, she did not screw it up. In sports, this would be credited as nailing a move that had a low level of difficulty, but executing it flawlessly. If there was a genius to this speech, it wasn't in a rhetorical flourish. It wasn't a brand new slogan. It might have just been that it signaled the pace in which she will run her campaign because Trump controls every news cycle. No scandal sticks because he's on to the next thing the next day, sometimes within the next clause of the current sentence he's on. So maybe Hillary will be deploying the Bunker Hill philosophy. Don't fire until you see the whites of his voting base. Sorry, the whites of his eyes. Things will intensify for sure as November nears, they'll get more frenetic, they have to, but that is five months away. So for now and perhaps the near future, Hillary Clinton gave us a glimpse of her strategy to be commanding, compelling, and correct. In the spiel today, the future of listening to radio in your car, Siri might have something to say. But first, I talked to the director of a new documentary called The Witness. It's about the killing of Kitty Genovese, a story that came to represent something that we find out it never should have represented and destroyed a family in the process. Father's Day is June 19th. I know they always say, you know, Father's Day is coming up. Father's Day is right around the corner. Well, we know it's some Sunday, but you never know when. It's June 19th. That means it's coming up soon. You got to get a gift. And also, if you listen to this offer that I'm about to give you, it will come to your house, your dad's house on time. And it's a shaving set, a set from Harry's Razors. Harry's bought a factory in Germany. There are five blade razors do the job beautifully they're handcrafted and the set for father's day is this this shave set includes a black razor handle a chrome razor stand moisturizing foaming gel three of harry's handcrafted blade cartridges and a travel cover all for only 40 bucks and you can add custom engraving and a personalized card. So there you go, dad or a dad, any dad, any whisker-generating mail. It's all for 40 bucks. Also, they have different sets that start for as little as 15 bucks now when I say as little as 15 bucks remember you're gonna be saving a lot of money with Harry's because it's really two dollars a blade or less and compare that to how much you know the store brands cost it's quite a savings but also when I say 15 or less or 40 for the set it doesn't even take into account the special offer which is five dollars off your first purchase if you haven't used the code just yet on Harry's now is the perfect chance five dollars off your first first purchase with the promo code just do not wait the free shipping ends friday for fathers day that's tomorrow so act now you got to do it by tomorrow com. enter code just at checkout to get $5 off and you'll get your dad or a dad something he'll actually use this fathers day The story of Kitty Genovese is just that, a story, a myth, a kind of fable that's meant to tell us something about man's inhumanity towards man or urban indifference or isolation. The young woman who was stabbed in Kew Gardens, Queens, steps from her apartment. It was a crime witnessed by 38 people, none of whom called the cops. Well, let's let Bill Clinton take it from here.
1: Lights came on in the apartment building, a window opened. The attacker got nervous and left. But not a single person came to the rescue. No one even called the police at a time when the average response time was two minutes. So the man came back and stabbed her again.
2: Now, much of that isn't true. The witness is a lot more than a corrective. However, this new documentary by James Solomon fleshes out Kitty Genovese's story and centers on her brother, Bill, his story and a bit about her killer, James is here. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for coming in. So so you probably had the same experience I did. We're about the same age. It's just impossible not to be a New Yorker. Maybe this was true for people not in New York and not to have heard it within a sentence of not of the lesson. And the lesson is you have to do something you have to you can't stand by and let evil triumph. Is that what originally captivated you about the story? That
1: question of, you know, how could they have done nothing? I think there are a variety of things. I think there's the center of an incredible mystery and sort of what happened that night. The original story, and not to correct you, but the original story in the Times was 38 watched. Yes. For more than a half hour. It's not witnessed, watched. That version is essentially sort of theater in the round. People almost in chairs pulled up watching a murder take place. Was
2: it the, a Life magazine story by Loudon Wainwright where there was a reference to as if watching the late show? You know, Loudon Wainwright, the father of the folk singer, Loudon Wainwright, yeah, who was a journalist. Well, back and,
1: and and so this, the story, it wasn't – actually, you, you bring up an important point. It wasn't enough that the original story was 38 watched. Others had to embellish the story to make it even worse. There are – multiple mysteries and I think we're always fascinated what happened in the apartments that night how did that story come to be who was Kitty Genovese she's only known to most of us for the last 32 minutes of her life and who was this man Winston Mosley who murdered Kitty the interesting thing about it was Mosley was less on trial certainly in the court of public of opinion than the people who witnessed and they were in a sense blamed for the murder all of that interested me.
2: This began as a screenplay, but when you began writing on the screenplay, the New York Times had not—in 2004, they came out and they re-examined the facts and the revelations in your movie. I mean, you flesh it out much more and you make it human. We'll get to that. But the basics of 38 eyewitnesses, that was pretty much debunked in 2004. But you were working on a Kitty Genevieve story before the debunking.
1: Well, that's right, Mike. And I, what, I mean, basically what I uh, sold— was a pitch to HBO based on the iconic story yes. that we know. That's what the film was going to be. And in the course of researching or reporting that story, I met Bill Genovese. The minute you meet Bill Genovese, you immediately get to know Kitty. There are five Genevieve siblings. Kitty was the oldest. She had four, three brothers and a sister, and Bill and Kitty were the closest. So you begin to meet Kitty through Bill. The other thing, though, that was incredibly um, poignant was that Bill wasn't just affected by the, the loss of his sister, but by the way the Times and others had reported she died. He said, the first time I met him, he said, I was propelled to prove that I was not only would have been one of the people who opened the window that night, but would have gone down into the street.
2: Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, you talk about a murder victims, family members, people who knew anyone affected by a tragedy. A phrase, a psychological wound It leaves a psychological wound In Bill's case, it left a literal wound I mean, there is a direct line, and it's in the movie He goes to Vietnam He goes to Vietnam because of what you just said He wants to be a person who gets involved Who intervenes And he loses his legs in Vietnam
1: I was 16 when my sister Kitty was murdered in New York City In an instant, she was gone
2: When you met him, so when you had sold your idea to HBO, what was his understanding of what, quote unquote, really happened that night?
1: It was what we all uh, have come to know. Because he Uh, didn't go
2: to the trial. The family didn't go to the trial. It was sort of his knowledge of it was mediated through Times coverage, like literally the Times. They own that story. As you document, it wasn't re-reported by others. The Times wrote it. That's what the family believed.
1: The story was so horrific for his family, the tragedy so profound and not just the loss but the public aspect of it that his family withdrew in a span of five years from bill at 16 his sister was murdered at 17 his mother at the age of 53 had a stroke clearly from the stress at 19 bill lost both of his legs and at 21 his father died of a stroke at the age of 59 this all happened in a five-year period the family withdrew from the public aspect of this story and grieved privately. What was fascinating to me in 1999 when I first started contemplating a screenplay was that everybody has chewed on this story for decades except the people who we've not really heard from or the people who were the most directly impacted. That's actually what The Witness is about. It's the people who were most directly and profoundly impacted both by the loss of Kitty but also who knew her in life. In 1999, that project nothing came of it for Mm -hmm. HBO. And over the next few years, I maintained some limited connection and communications with Bill. Then in 2004, on the 40th anniversary, Jim Rassenberger, a Times reporter, was commissioned to write a general, generic, every decade piece for the Times. And he came back with a story that he filed that challenged this seminal New York Times story. And When Bill read that story, he was propelled to find out for himself what actually happened. He and I began to speak about it. I wanted to document his journey, and he was open to my doing so.
2: One of the first interviews that he must have done is to talk to A.M. Rosenthal, Abe Rosenthal, who is a seminal figure in U.S. journalism, uh, later became the editor of the Times. He, he, He wasn't the byline on the story, but he was basically the person who created the myth. And, well, you tell me, what because Abe Rosenthal died in 2006, but we have Bill interviewing Rosenthal. When did that take place? Was that one of the first interviews he did?
1: It was, an, it was an early interview that Bill did. Rosenthal was in sort of declining health at that time. I think he was 82 at the time, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he was very gracious to welcome Bill into his home, and they had a conversation. But it was clear when Bill prods about the accuracy of the story, Rosenthal was rather defensive.
2: Mm -hmm. He refuses to give ground. This was after his own paper re a story, he has a lot of ego. He must have, he was, he was old, maybe he didn't want to admit, couldn't admit. He's culpable for creating this myth. He stands by the myth. I think there's a lot of blame that should fall on Rosenthal for what he took away from the Genovese family. As a newspaper man, he should realize that even if he thinks he's creating a greater cultural good by getting the basic facts wrong, you have done a wrong to the actual people involved.
1: Well, there were five dailies in New York, at least at that time. There were other reporters there. There were other publications. They didn't question the story. In fact, several of the papers, one in particular, Journal American, was genuflecting at the altar of the New York Times. Yeah. They wrote six paragraphs as to how extraordinary the coverage was. They said every so often a story is written that we should admire and we need to step back as competitors and recognize. You know, The journalists have this This expression: some stories are too good to check. check, And it seems that in in many respects, that's what happened here. What Bill does in the course of ten years within the witness is to move far beyond whether the story was accurate or not, but to examine the impact of this false narrative on the lives of those who would be most affected, be it the witnesses, or his family, or those who were closest, who loved Kitty.
2: But he does go back. He talks to Michael Farrar, who's – this was, I think, the biggest revelation. Well, early on, the one that helped him the most. Michael Farrar's mom was Kitty's friend. She was supposedly one of these witnesses. And yet the truth of it was that Kitty did not die alone yelling. As Farrar demonstrates, Kitty died essentially in her friend's arms.
1: So this story, this iconic story – about urban indifference as a hero after all. Yeah. Sophia Ferrar receives a call in the middle of the attacks that Kitty is in trouble, that one of the neighbors too frantically calls, doesn't know what to do. And what is Sophia's response? She doesn't even wait for her husband. She doesn't even put clothes on. She rushes out her door, outside, down a rear alley, dark, forces her way inside another doorway, inside a vestibule, having no idea what's on the other side, and cradles Kitty, and Kitty died in her arms. What's inconceivable and truly tragic is to think that for a half century, the Genovese family did not know that Kitty died in the arms of a friend. The extraordinary thing from a news standpoint is that Sophia appears in multiple Accounts in the intervening days right after Kitty's murder. So it's not as if she didn't exist or people didn't know about her. She even testified at trial. So it's bizarre that she got dropped from the narrative.
0: My mom spoke to one woman from a newspaper back then and she told her what happened. And the woman says, You know, would you do that again if you had to? And my mother says, Certainly, of course. When the paper come out, it says my mom said that she would never get involved with it. And that's when my mother says. It don't pay to talk because they twist what you say. And that's she never said anything since.
2: As you say, you go beyond just the fact checking. And the rewriting and you even try to or Bill tries to, when you're with him, talk to Winston Mosley, her killer, who, by the way, two months ago died as the at the time longest serving prisoner in a New York correctional facility. And then at the end, tell me if it was Bill's idea. He hires an actress to reenact the, the sounds of what Kitty would have done. In the movie, they show him taping up notices. I guess this is to not scare the neighbors. So it's not an experiment to see if what – Thank you
1: for asking that. It's it's not
2: an experiment. But tell me what the intention was to hire this actress to essentially play out what Kitty would have been doing in the last few moments of her life.
1: For 50 years, Bill has been contemplating what it was like on the street that night and running it in his mind. There's a very scientific bent to him, and I think he wanted to get a sense of what it would sound like, look like. He didn't hire an actor to play Winston Mosley. He hired an actress to play his sister or to vocalize what she went through and to essentially walk her final steps. I think Bill was surprised by the emotional, immersive experience of it all. I think Bill had sort of been running this film in his mind as to what it was like. And I don't think he ever thought it was possible to actually play it out. His concern was, is it too indulgent? Would it be too indulgent? Would it be inflicting himself on too many other people? And so we talked about how do you do that? And the ways you go about it is, we cleared it with the city, we got permits, we went to the police precinct, got communicated to the police precinct, we were present. we have been filming for 10 years, so the neighborhood really knew us and our film. We were a presence that day. There were police on the street. We filmed at the first darkness. It's April, so that would have been about 6 o'clock. So we weren't filming at 3 in the morning. All of those things were done so the neighborhood knew fully well what we were doing. But I think there's there's another part that's rather important to mention. The people who appear in this film, and that includes the neighbors who live in Kew Gardens, wouldn't have done this for anyone but Bill. And they did it in part because I think they felt they owed it to Kitty Genovese. But there's also another part of Bill that's singular. And that is, Bill has been in a chair since he was 19 because he's a double amputee. He's accustomed to people being uncomfortable and he makes them comfortable. And he made all of these people in the film who are not of the selfie generation willing to not only share their innermost trauma, loss, guilt, not only share it with him, but do so on camera. So
2: I should say that your brother John was a friend of mine. He was a really good journalist for a number of places, but I knew him from the show on the media. And he would do these reports that are very much like the content that compels you, questioning the established story. One of his great—he did a great report on the NRA, on the NRA, but one of his best reports was just about the artifice of a public radio report and retakes. And he played the tape before they cut it up and what it sounds like. It's phenomenal. They've probably replayed it three times. So what about it? What about you two guys? You know, why this thread, so much of your professional careers, was you know questioning the established story?
1: Well, you know, just so that your listeners understand, I set out, started making a film about a brother who lost a sister, about sibling loss, and in the course of making this film in 2008, John was diagnosed with leukemia. John was my only sibling, was two years older. He and I have always been interested in what our role and responsibilities are. What do we owe each other? His work focused on the public-private trust. His seminal work in emergency management was really about what is the individual's role and what's the government's role? What, do, what are our responsibilities? This story, Kitty Genevieve story, speaks, you asked at the very beginning, what's the connection to why does it interest so many people. I think it asks a question. In the middle of the night, you hear a scream. What do you do? What is your responsibility?
2: The name of the film is The Witness. It's the story, the real story of Bill Genovese searching for the truth behind what happened to his sister Kitty Genovese. The filmmaker is James Solomon. This movie opens on Friday at IFC Film Center in New York. It'll be maybe we hope rolling out to a uh, theater near you. Thank you, Jim. Thanks
1: so much, Mike.
2: Audible content includes more than 250,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers broadcasters, entertainers, magazines newspapers, business information provider. So books, you know them for books though and we have a free 30 day trial membership and you could get a free audiobook let me recommend one, in fact on the website on Slate there is a list of uh, 20 of the best authors that I've interviewed, 20 of the best interviews, so I pick one of them my friend Fred Kaplan, who's book dark territory the history of cyber war is perfect in audiobook form because it's nine hours and two minutes it's kind of uh, it's a very manageable book length there's a lot of interesting stuff in there the guy who's reading it Malcolm Hillgartner that guy can read so dark territory the secret history of cyber war by Fred Kaplan can be the free audiobook you listen to or any audiobook at all just go to audiblepodcast.com the gist there's a quarter million audio programs. There, download whatever free title you want and start listening audiblepodcast.com slash the gist you could get started today and now the spiel morphing and stations Today in Slate, a guy by the name of Steve Liktai, you might know him in the credits, wrote an article called The End of All Things Considered, How Voice Recognition Technology Will Change the Way We Listen to Radio. What a hypocrite. If this guy really believed that All Things Considered was going to end, he would have left the sinking ship of NPR. Oh, wait, that's exactly what he did. In the article, Steve Lichtai argues that NPR, like ESPN Center, will become victim to news on demand. And we won't just press a button and hear the news come out of the radio. We will say, hey, play this song that I want. Hey, give me the news that I want. Hey, tell me yesterday's baseball scores. And the service that is NPR will cease to be the service that we knew. This may come true. It may not. I see things trending in that general direction. I think NPR probably does, too. But I want to tell you what goes on in my car right now. So the subtitle of this piece was how voice recognition technology will change the way we listen to radio. But radio is already being affected by voice recognition technology. I mean, perhaps you've been there like I have. All right, let's see what's going on in the world of sports. Uh, Mike and Mike in the morning. Okay, let's see who's on. But are they the best backcourt in NBA history at this point? What's the answer to that question, Jalen?
0: Did you want me to map Quest Jail? No, what? Okay, turn right and take I-84 for the Orange County Correctional Facility.
2: No, 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 no. It says... Que- What's that question, Jail and oh, I... Or you can
0: just plow headfirst into that 7-Eleven that will get you to jail.
2: It's a terrible idea.
0: Okay, you've passed that 7-Eleven. Would you like to plow headfirst into Wright-Aid?
2: All, right, all right, I gotta put on NPR. From NPR
1: News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Audie Cornish. And I'm Robert Siegel.
0: Did you say Robert Beagle? No. Rob a beagle? I think you wanted to rob a beagle. I. What does that even mean? Okay, here are all dog napping rings within a 40 mile radius.
2: They're listed? They're accessible on Google? Shall I connect you to Poodle Absconders or the Rhodesian Ridgeback Reclamation Project? Oh my god, I gotta get off NPR. Let's listen to what's on. Just regular conservative talk radio. Obama's America. White kids getting beat up on uh, on school buses now. I mean, you, you put your kids on a school bus, you expect. You expect safety, but in Obama's America, the white kids now get beat up with the black kids cheering, yeah,
1: right on, right, on, right on.
0: Based on your playlist, I found similar tracks you may like. Let me play one. All right.
1: And I say segregation now, segregation
2: tomorrow, and segregation Forever! forever. You know what? That's actually a pretty good call. But you know what? I can't—in my commute, I can't live in this space. All right, let's go back to ATC. Let's go back to NPR. Let's see what's going on there. Unless we shift course, superbugs will become a fact of life. That line comes from Zika Manuel, chair of the— I think you said Zika Manuel. No, I didn't say—he didn't say—oh, Zika
0: Manual. Would you like a manual on the detection and prevention of the Zika virus? I— Yes, I think I would. Would you like it if that Zika manual were authored by Zika manual?
2: You know what? Yes, I'd call that synergy. Thank you, Siri. You're welcome, Moog. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson's foreign policy experience includes not watching the Miss Universe pageant in Russia. I will leave it to the psychologists to analyze Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast's attraction to tyrants, especially the tyranny of Echo voice recognition software. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. But you know what? Being on the same episode as Happier with Gretchen Rubin isn't the same thing as actually being happier. The gist are tools, bragging, mocking, and composing tweets. In fact, we may be composing one right now. Umperu peru da peru, and thanks for listening.